It's my pleasure this morning to welcome Carla Wubenhorst. She is known to many at Courtright. She's a Presbyterian minister and, like I said, a longtime friend at Courtright. And I'm just going to pray for her and then invite her to come up uh, and lead us in hearing from God's word this morning. So God, we thank you so much for Carla. We pray your blessing and anointing on the word that she has. We pray that you would open our eyes and ears to hear the truth that you would have for us this morning. For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Very good morning to the eight or so people who are here in the sanctuary and also to the folk uh, at home. Worship is a participatory event and it's especially important to me to think of uh, the people at home and your participation in this union of the spirit uh, that we have as we come before God in worship. Uh, We hear from... uh, three scriptures this morning. The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 16 to 19. Hear the word of God. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Our reading from the New Testament letter comes from Hebrews chapter 11, selected verses. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith he received power of procreation, even though he was too old and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told, it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And by faith, Isaac invoked blessings for the future on Jacob and Esau. Finally, we read the words of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 25 to 38. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. 
and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Holy Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, who had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer, night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to, who, to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. May God bless these words to our understanding. And grant that I may speak faithfully now in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. In 1872, the French writer Jules Verne introduced to the world a character called Phileas Fogg. He was an Englishman of fastidious habits who lived alone except for one manservant, a recent replacement for the careless man who had brought his master 84-degree shaving water instead of Fogg's stipulated 86 degrees. Each morning, Fogg would leave his residence in Savile Row at precisely the hour of 11.30 a.m. and repair to the Reform Club where he breakfasted and dined at hours mathematically fixed in the same room at the same table and where he read the papers and played the card game known as whist until precisely the hour of midnight. Then he would walk home and retire at once to bed. Verne wrote of him that his daily habits were quite open to observation, but whatever he did, it was sure to be exactly the same thing that he had always done before. One day in conversation with his whist partners, Fogg expressed the opinion that it would be possible to travel around the world in 80 days. They were dubious and challenged him to a 20,000-pound wager that he would not be able to contend with all the unforeseen circumstances that travel throws in one's way and arrive back at the Reform Club in 80 days. Fogg's opinion was that with proper planning, the unforeseen did not exist, and he took up the wager. In the course of his journey, Fogg learned that the unforeseen did, in fact, exist. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And although Fogg met each challenge with the same orderliness and unflappability that he displayed back in London, he still needed a miracle of grace of a kind to crown his efforts and to bring him back to the Reform Club on time. 
Myself, I'm much less orderly in my habits and certainly less precise in my timekeeping than Phileas Fogg. I also love travel for the very reason that it challenged him. When you undertake a journey, you are constantly vulnerable to circumstances you don't control, and you're pushed to the edge of your own capabilities to meet the unforeseen. That's where the adventures happen, and that's where faith is demanded and where grace is met much more frequently than in our usual round of predictable activity. But this new year, I'm thinking that in another way, I am quite like Phileas Fogg. I have my patterns, not so much my patterns of daily movement and predictable routine, as my patterns of relating, habits of thought and behavior in relation to others, in relation to God, my default settings, the habits of my heart, my fearful and fallen heart. Here's the kind of thing I mean. Telling the truth. So often we interact with others, and we're aware of the potential for conflict and confrontation, perhaps of losing the love or approval of people whose opinion matters to us if we really say what we think. So to the degree that we are conflict avoiders and people pleasers, we often develop a habit of reticence and do not voice the full extent of what we believe to be true. Now, there are times when greater reticence is appropriate, but often, at least in my own case, it's not wisdom or discernment which drives when I do and when I don't speak out, but rather it's these kinds of fears, fear of conflict and confrontation, fear of falling in someone else's estimate. Here's another example, showing our love. We know that as Christians we're supposed to show love not only in our speech but in our actions. But we have our habits of restraint when it comes to love too and for similar fear-driven reasons. Perhaps we know of some way we could help someone or some way to deepen a relationship beyond the surface patterns of interaction. But what if that forms a dependence? What if that relationship will then demand something that will be too costly for us? Isn't that the worry that we have all the time that stops us going deeper into our relationship of love with God? We know that that's a love that will demand nothing more or less than all our heart and soul and mind and strength. So what might that get us into? What might that require us to give up? And so we form habits, we establish our patterns of interacting which are designed as much to regulate the amount of love that we give as they are to provide an expression of that love. I'll give God an hour on Sunday and maybe that will keep his eye off my finances and off my cherished sins. I'll give that person a text to see how they're doing and maybe that'll prevent me from having to spend a couple of hours with them on the phone. Our patterns are comforting because they help us feel in control. They help to keep the world's chaos at bay, 
together with the fears that chaos inspires. But this is self-comfort. It's not God's comfort. It's self-in-control. It's not God-in-control. As well as the fears that keep us treading out the same patterns, I believe there is in us also a hunger for newness. In Scripture, whenever the prophets of God declare that God is doing a new thing, this is greeted with the same sort of gladness with which watchmen greet the dawn. Because here is possibility, the possibility of something improved, something redeemed, the dawn of something better. I think we feel this hunger for newness keenly every new year. It's the time when we grow discontented with the same old, same old, not least of all in ourselves. It's the time when we try to form new habits, a resolution to read scripture daily, a resolution to save for a special financial goal when we normally spend that much every day on coffee, a resolution to join a gym or start a diet, a resolution to lower our screen time and increase our relational time or our time spent in nature. But for Christians, the possibility which dawns and the newness for which we hunger is not so much something that we can accomplish for ourselves, a scheme of self-improvement. It's something that the hand of the Lord will accomplish. It is God's new thing that is happening. To let go of both our fears and the patterns that we establish to control them. To let God call us into the new thing is exciting, but it takes considerable faith. Today I wanted us to look at the story of Abraham, which is set forth in Genesis chapters 12 to 25, or in summary form in the bit we read from the letter to the Hebrews. It's the story of a man whose life patterns are pretty well established by the time God starts working on him. Abraham is already 75 years of age when he hears the the call of God. But remarkably, he changes his patterns and by faith enters into the new thing that God is doing. He also has some fairly well-established sin patterns that occur and reappear in his story. But God still works with him to make him the kind of man who can justly be called the true spiritual father to all who are marked by faith and by obedience. The selection of Abraham and his family to carry forward the relationship between God and humankind is a great example of how God also changes his patterns. The first 11 chapters of Genesis show us God in relationship with humanity in general. Now he's going to do a new thing. He's going to work with a particular people, and through this particular people, the family of Abraham, God says that all nations on the earth will be blessed. Here are the highlights of the Abraham story, which fills chapters 18 to 25 of the book of Genesis. Abram, married to the childless Sarai and guardian of his nephew Lot, is called by God to leave Haran, where the family has relocated already from Ur. 
He is to go to the land which God has promised him as an inheritance for his descendants. When he completes the 7,500-mile journey to Canaan, the land of promise, there's a famine which drives him another 5,200 miles to Egypt. In Egypt, Abram passes off his wife as his sister so that Pharaoh, who wants to marry her, won't kill him as competition. This ruse fails to protect Sarai and makes of the Pharaoh an unwitting adulterer who incurs the punishment of God. So that episode is a blot on Abraham's character and a sin pattern that he repeats and that his son repeats. Booted out of Egypt, Abram travels back to the Negev and divides from Lot, who settles in the Jordan plain near the Canaanite cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, while Abram and Sarai settle near Hebron. A war breaks out between the Canaanite tribes, and Lot gets taken prisoner. So Abraham has to gather a small army and go north to Syria to rescue him. On his homeward road, he meets with the allied kings of Sodom and of Salem and displays a certain faithfulness in the way that he is prepared to tithe from and to hand over the spoils of war. He's faithful here to the degree that he wants to depend on God solely to provide for him and not to be beholden to any of the earthly kings. God does, in fact, make Abram rich, but this leads him to lament that he has no son who will inherit after him. God speaks to him a second time about the promise, saying that his descendants will be as many as the stars. And it says that Abram believed God. God himself committed to that promise in a weird ritual of walking between the pieces of severed animals before he asks of any covenantal gesture from Abram in response. But Abraham continues to be insecure about the promise of God to provide him with offspring. Otherwise, why would he take up Sarai's suggestion that he try to get an heir by Hagar, Sarai's Egyptian serving maid? This do-it-yourself plan for obtaining God's promised blessings results in a son, Ishmael, though the relationship between Sarai and Hagar is never easy from the moment that Hagar conceives. The third time that God speaks to Abram about the promise of a son, renaming him Abraham and Sarai, Sarah, Abram is delighted with his son Ishmael. But God makes it clear that Ishmael is not the child of the promise, the child through whom the covenant will move. That son is yet to be given, and it is to be a sheer gift of God to both Abraham and Sarah. When Abraham hears this, he laughs, for he's 100, and Sarah is 90. But his laughter is more wondering than disbelieving. Meanwhile, God impresses upon Abraham that the covenant is about righteousness and the marker of a righteous and holy people set apart is circumcision. Imagine the faith of Abraham in carrying through obedience on that one when he himself is 100 and Ishmael 13. 
In Genesis 18 comes the fourth word from God, this time in the form of three male messengers whom Abraham hosts in his tent. Then at last he is given a time frame for the long-promised son. Sarah, overhearing them, also laughs. Between chapters 18 and the birth of Isaac in chapter 21, there are some rather negative stories about the destruction of Sodom and Lot's wife's faithful, fateful decision to look back as the city is burning, and also a story about the second time that Abraham tries to pass off Sarah as his sister. This time it's to a Philistine king called Abimelech. The story shows that sinful, sinful patterns persist, even in those who are growing in faith and in obedience. But the outcome is slightly more positive in that Abimelech and Abraham enter a treaty, giving Abraham his first parcel of land in Canaan that is really his. Chapter 21 has the joyful birth of Isaac, whose name means son of laughter. Unfortunately, it also contains the sad story of Hagar and Ishmael's expulsion from the family compound because of Sarah's jealousy. In chapter 22, there follows what is probably the most famous part of the Abraham story, God's demand that he sacrifice the very son by which all his hopes for the promised lineage hang. Abraham shows that he is prepared to act with the obedience that comes from faith. At the last minute, God stays his hand and provides a ram to sacrifice in place of the boy. The last three chapters of the Abraham saga concern the death of Sarah and her tomb in Canaan, the finding of a wife for Isaac so that he might not have to intermarry with the local Canaanite women, the remarriage of Abraham to Keturah and her bearing of six further sons for him, and finally a testament to how Abraham's other children were included even while Isaac remained the privileged offspring through which the covenant would move. Although Hagar and Ishmael were banished, they remained near enough for Ishmael to have participation together with Isaac at the burial of his father. And there is even some suggestion that Keturah, the second wife of Abraham, was none other than Hagar herself. So that's the saga, and at various points we see Abraham's faith, his obedience, and warring with that, his fear that drives his sin. What does this remarkable story show? It shows, first of all, that the ways of God, which are always fresh, always surprising, to the point of making Abraham and Sarah laugh with wonder at the outcome that they could never have achieved for themselves a son of their own union, when his mother was 90 years of age and his father 100. How must they have cried out to God, seemingly unheeded, across those decades of infertility, to the point where they truly believed that all the patterns of their lives were written in stone. No newness was possible, no potential. And then... And then, God amazed them by his grace. 
I wonder this new year, could it be like that for us too? Could that prayer that we've been praying for decades to an unheeding heaven suddenly meet with God's decision to do a new thing in God's time? Could that sin we never thought we'd get victory over suddenly become a thing of the past when God visits us with new power? Could that relationship which seems so broken that we don't even dare embark on a mission of recovery suddenly be restored and enter a new life-giving chapter? as it seems that at least a partial relationship was restored between Abraham's first two sons. Of course, the miracle of God that lies at the center of the Abraham story is not a case of Abraham and Sarah gaining the power of God to fulfill their private wish for a child. It's more a case of God's purposing a whole new way to relate to humankind by means of a covenant of promise and calling into that adventure people who will respond with faith and with obedience. It's not God who has changed. It is Abraham and Sarah, their old patterns of fearfulness and injustice must die or must wane away, and new habits of faith and righteous obedience take form. We see it happening gradually, and we wonder how fully they achieve those targets, even by the end of their lives. And it's the same with us. We may still operate from fear. In the midst of this pandemic, it is certainly a constant temptation. But as we come to know God, as we develop a friendship with him and see the way that he works in our lives and in the lives of those close to us over years and years, Hopefully our faith becomes stronger and the obedience that is born from it. Abraham is still operating from fear when at 100 years of age he tells the same lie to Abimelech that he tried on with Pharaoh 25 years earlier. Sarah is operating from fear when she insists on the banishment of Hagar. She feels threatened. She doesn't believe there can be room in God's bounteous blessing for both of them. But as Hebrews says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out not knowing where he was going. By faith he received power of procreation, even though he was too old and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person and from one as good as dead, descendants were born. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac, believing that God is able to raise someone from the dead. At the end of our lives, may it be said of us that our faith outweighed our fear and that our general habit of obedience outweighed the moments when fear overtook us and we reverted to an easier path of rebellion. So here's the challenge for 2022. Change just one pattern. Figure out how it is that you always respond, maybe in the area of speaking the truth, 
maybe in the area of demonstrating love, maybe in the area of doing something you had previously assumed can only be done by other people. And then do something different. Say the thing that polite reticence has prevented you from saying before. You have no idea what will happen, but chances are that something will. And chances are the world will be a better place the more people find the courage to speak the truth. Risk demonstrating love to a degree slightly greater than your sensible economical Presbyterian upbringing told you was wise for your self-preservation. You have no idea what a hunger there is in this world for love and for people and for churches who have a lot of love to give. Chances are the world will be a better place the more people who risk loving God and their neighbor without reserve. If we stay within the comfort zone established by our Phileas Fogg-like routines, 2022 will, I guarantee, be much like all the other years that have gone before it. But what if 2022 is the year that God has decided to do a new thing in our lives, or in the life of Courtright, or in this little corner of our community? Will we greet that with faith and with obedience? Or will we, as Abraham and Sarah could have responded, say, no, we're too old? We know what the outcome will be before we try. We've tried for years and years. Or will we prove ourselves to be the kind of people that God can partner with in doing a new thing? And here's one more thing. Hebrews is quite clear that folk like Abraham and Sarah hoped in realities that they only partially saw. At the end of their life, they had a grave in the promised land. And what of that great starry host of descendants? Well, they had arranged for their only son to get married. They didn't even yet have one grandchild. But there's another aged couple recorded in the Gospels, Simeon and Anna, who, like Abraham and Sarah, have waited long years to greet a promised child. One day, a young couple comes into the temple with a babe in arms, and through dim eyes, Simeon and Anna recognize the one who will upset all the tired patterns of this whole world. The one who is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel. Or as his mother sang, who will cast down the mighty from their thrones and lift up the lowly. Christ doesn't come into this world for the same old, same old. Things are being shaken up when he is present. And when we are present with Jesus, in faith we become the shakers. Christ is the one that Simeon calls the light for the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. In being born into our world in the form of that tiny child, God surely did a new thing, 
again. He placed his heavenly light in our world. And Christ, the risen Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is in our world still. He's in us. So when we step out in faith and in obedience, we do not go into a dark abyss, not completely. We tread a lighted way, and we have a hand to hold. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of Christ. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. Thanks be to God.